And as our children leave, let us bow together and pray. Open our hearts and our ears, O God, to hear what is ours to know this day and for this time about your cross. As we survey the wondrous cross, may we do so with great humility, but with great intention. For we seek to be your faithful followers, now and always. In your holy name we pray, amen. There's been a lot of my life that has gone through changes. Uh, Changed places where I live. I've changed uh, churches some years ago. I certainly aged and changed in my look. Uh, The length of my hair. The color of my hair, it used to be black. Now I'm dying at this kind of grayish color. Um, the people I hang with, the people I read, I've changed intellectually and theologically and I suppose in terms of my values. I've, I've made some changes over the years. But there's been one thing that has been constant in my life from really my earliest memories, and that is Jesus and the cross. I grew up in a church. It didn't have a crucifix in it, but we talked every Sunday about Jesus and the cross. So it wasn't visual, but it was verbal from my earliest memories. So Jesus right up there with my family and Santa Claus are things that were just part of my culture, part of my my world and life. Not always a welcome companion, but an ever-present companion. But when something is a constant, when you have something that is part of who you are from your earliest memories, it's certainly a part of who you are. But there's also this danger. There's the likelihood that you'll take it for granted and in some ways be largely unaffected by it, really not even really struck by what it says or what it implies. And you mix that familiarity with what most of us have in in our childhood, which is an adolescent, rather simple, literalistic impression of the cross. And that's your norm. That's your norm. So what if you've known about the cross your whole life? Jesus dying, but it's this mix of taking it for granted and retaining this sort of simplistic, literalistic impression of what it's about, then your norm becomes a simplistic understanding of Jesus and salvation and what this whole work of love is all about. It becomes kind of magical. Believe the right things. Say the right things. Believe that God created the world in such a way that when sin came into the world, someone had to die and God sent Jesus to die for our replacement. I don't mean to be disrespectful of that way of framing it. But as the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I spoke like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things. What if the cross and Jesus and this whole Lenten season 
is one huge lived out clue, this call to a way that is the way of wholeness and the way of God. It's more than just historic, although it is historic. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross. But what if Jesus and the cross is more than historic? What if it's about this today, our lives, the world we find ourselves in now? The world needs to hear God's message given through Jesus and the cross. Not the simplistic adolescent version, but a version that transcends times, and cultures, and even religions, even religions, to get to the core of what we're called to be about, what God intends for this world. Which is why during this Lenten season, I'm proposing that we survey the wondrous cross. Now, if you've been in church like I have for your whole life, you recognize that line, survey the wondrous cross. It comes from a 309-year-old hymn that Isaac Watts wrote for us. But I'm not merely talking about nostalgia when I survey the wondrous cross, but rather to invite us now to survey this cross and Jesus on this cross to explore carefully to appraise it and investigate it, to hold it at different angles, not as critics, but as lovers, as people who choose to be faithful, to show up, to look, to gaze upon the cross and Jesus, and to ask, what could this mean for us today? Well, all of that was introduction, I'm sorry. Now I'm going to start the sermon. And I want to begin with a question that a person might have if Jesus and the cross were not your constant companion from your earliest memories. What if you came in today and saw a man hanging on a cross? What questions would come to mind? What happened? What did he do? You tell me he's a person of love and of God. How does a man of love end up crucified naked on a cross? How did it all come to this? Well, if you take the passage we read today from Luke 22 and 23, it's pretty easy to find three suspects that we can charge as the guilty parties for what happened up here. The Jews, the Romans, and Judas. It's pretty clear-cut. They are the ones responsible. And therefore, many people through the years have concluded, we can't trust the Jews, we can't trust the Romans, and we can't trust especially Jews like Judas who handle the money of the disciples. But for some reason, the Romans and the treasurers have gotten off. The Jews, a lot of people still blame the Jews. But here's the odd thing. Not only about the Jews, but the Romans and Judas Iscariot. They all came from good stock. They all came from wonderful traditions. We all know that Judaism is what gave us monotheism, the sense that there's but one God. 
a hugely important uh, uh, awakening that started with uh, uh, Abraham. Uh, Very important. The laws, the Psalms, the writings, the prophets, champions of justice, all flow out of Judaism. And let's never forget, Jesus was a Jew. So Judaism, wonderful. Rome, first century Rome, Roman culture, philosophy, order, Pax Romana, peace around the world, the Roman roads, the trades that they uh, initiated, the aqueducts that allowed water to flow freely, the arts, religion, Roman culture was beautiful. So the Jews, the Romans, and then Judas Iscariot, for goodness sakes, one of the hand-picked disciples He's on the executive committee of the disciples. He's the treasurer. And yet, what happened? They came from good stock. What if the problem is not where they came from? Not their stock. What if it's the view of life that these Jewish leaders and these Roman leaders and this one particular disciple shared in common. You could almost call them a trinity of scarcity. For they all embrace the worldview of scarcity. It's what holds them together. It's what brings them together in common cause to not only betray Jesus, but to torture him and execute him. In Luke 23, we read, That day, Herod, the king of the Jews, and Pilate, one of the Roman leaders, became friends. Herod and Judas. They cons- or Herod and Pilate, and they conspire with Judas, this trinity of scarcity. Scarcity says... There's not enough in the world. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and it's either kill or be killed. In a theology of scarcity, we believe that there's only one God, and we have God. Our God is the right God. Your God is the wrong God. Therefore, we know God, and we get to set the rules, and we have privilege as a result. Because God can only love so many. Forgiveness is limited, Power is limited, resources are limited, and as the privileged chosen people, we are the ones who will keep the power. We are the ones who will determine what is pure, what is beautiful, what is cultural. And everyone in our group must conform to our group and our standards, and everyone outside must stay outside. Therefore, borders, boundaries, in, out, right, wrong, good, bad. There seems to be a lot of evidence in the world today that would say that the theology of scarcity is the accurate view of the world. If you watch the television news at all or read the newspapers, you hear stories of crushing wars, of violence on all kinds of levels. You see the political conflict. You see the economy where there's senses of scarcity everywhere. It seems to be the narrative of the 
culture in which we live. It seems to be just part of the air in which we breathe. But my question is this. Is this an evidence of scarcity? Or is it that the world is being run on a theology and worldview of scarcity? Which then gives birth to greed, competition, border, wars, etc. A theology of scarcity is a worldview that comes from a dark place. We see its introduction in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent comes up to Adam and Eve, who have been placed in the garden of abundance, with the one limitation not to eat of one particular tree, and there is the serpent's opening. God is withholding that one tree from you because God is greedy. God doesn't want you to be like God. And in saying that to Adam and Eve, It's an image of the seed of scarcity being planted in the minds of the human family. A scarcity that plays on our fears and our insecurities. The seed that that sows uh, the, the, the roots of suspicion and distrust that we see in the Jewish leaders as they're offended by and scandalized by and threatened by Jesus. Why? But they go to the Romans and say, we need you to help us kill him. And Rome, rather than raising questions of justice, they choose to go along with the torture of Jesus to placate a riot and to show the world who's boss. And throw into the mix Judas, who betrays his leader and his friend. We do not know why. Was he jealous? Was he a spy? Was it about the money? Or was he just trying to force Jesus' hand? Whatever it is, scarcity brings these three together and justifies for them ambushing, torturing, and making a public spectacle of a man of love. What are the forces that nailed Jesus to the cross? At least one is the force of scarcity. Scarcity nailed one of Jesus' hands to the cross. The other hand? What, at, what, what brought scarcity to the forefront? What agitated it and animated scarcity was a different theology, a different worldview. We call it the theology of abundance. And it was embodied by Jesus himself, who came into the world saying, God is bigger than we ever dreamed, more beautiful than we ever dreamed, more gracious and more loving, and has the capacity to not just love the chosen people, but to love all people. For God so loved the world, everyone. Jesus came along and said, there's enough for all. His miracles are miracles of abundance. From the water into wine to the feeding of the thousands, there's enough for all, Jesus said. There's not enough for everyone to be greedy. 
He said, if you have two coats, give one of them away. But there's enough for everyone. There's enough land, there's enough air, there's enough water, there's enough oil and gas, there's enough resources that everyone can have enough if everyone is not greedy. There's enough power to share. Yes, we need leaders. Jesus told the leper, go show yourself to the priest. He didn't do away with leadership. But leaders, Jesus said, were meant to serve. They're meant to be shepherds. They're meant to make sure that life is more fair, not less fair. That it's more generous and abundant, not less. So that humanity could live in the freedom that God dreamed for us to live into. It doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to make it be what it was always intended to do, which is to bring the common good, to make sure that this abundance is available to all of God's children. And here's the beautiful thing, this generous God, this extravagant God, didn't save all this blessing to give out just by God's own self, but invites us, us, children of God, to be part of this blessing of the world. He told a parable one time about seed being planted in different types of soil. The soils represent us and our lives. Jesus said some of the soil just can't receive the dirt or receive the seed Because it's been too trampled on, too walked on by others. It's just too beaten down and packed down. It's not receptive to the seed. There's other soil that's surrounded by challenges. The seed gets planted, but but the soil's filled with rocks and weeds, and it prevents and competes with the growth. But some soil, Jesus said, oh man, some soil is ready ready and willing to receive the seed. And this one, when it welcomes the seed, Jesus said, it will yield 30 times, 60 times, 100 times over abundance. As God said to Abram long ago, I will bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus came into the world to remind us of what God has always intended for creation, that there be abundance and life for all. So, if on one hand, the forces of scarcity nail Jesus to the cross, the other hand is nailed by none other than Jesus himself who comes willingly and in love into Jerusalem and into your life and mine to show us this more excellent way, this way of absorbing all of the blows of scarcity and fear and returning it and multiplying it, not with scarcity and fear, but with abundant love. And so, Jesus comes to reveal scarcity's lie. It's a lie. To open our blind eyes and let us see the beauty and abundance that we will see on Easter morning when it's shown yet again that abundance 
is always stronger than scarcity. Life is always stronger than death. Love is always stronger than fear. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. The sermon is preached and heard, but now comes the real sermonic work. To let your spirit, O God, speak into our hearts in such a way that we are called, called to be your people now and always. To you be glory now and forever. Amen.